Good morning. Welcome to Redeemer Rockwall. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're a guest with us today, uh, we are delighted that you've joined us. And uh, you can consider yourself a part of our church family uh, this morning. And we're really glad you're here. We, uh, for the last few weeks, have been in a sermon series on the church to be reminded of who we are as the people of God. Because when we look at what the Bible says about who we are, we have to recognize that if we want to take Jesus seriously, then we have to take his church seriously. What we think about the church is a reflection of what we think about Jesus. And so far we've learned that through the body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, that we were adopted into his family. We were unified into his body We're built up into his temple. We're betrothed as his bride. And today we will look at how by his grace we were drafted into his army. For as his people, we are the army of God. And armies only make sense if there's war. And that's exactly what Paul tells us that we are in. He says in verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Have you heard that so many times that you don't hear it anymore? Let me read it again and hear it like it's the first time. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. It's a really jarring statement. It's awakening. Because we so naturally live in a way that just thinks about this imminent frame of life, traffic and bills and suburban busyness. And yet this statement comes along and it adds a transcendent dimension to your existence. It elevates your life into something cosmic. We don't really live with that mindset or the supernatural is at the forefront of how we view and understand the world around us. And maybe you do. And if you do, that's great. But if I'm going to be honest with you, I certainly struggle to live in light of that. I certainly struggle to, to remember it. Because it's far easier to fall, let it fall to the wayside. And when we do, we miss out on something. Because we think that it's something that doesn't impact our day-to-day life. And why is that? I mean, we are, after all spiritual people. We know that. And so then why do we struggle with spiritual things? Perhaps one reason is fear of silliness. When I was in college, a friend of mine went on a mission trip to Guatemala, and they were on a bus driving high up in the mountains. And then the bus broke down. And they tried and they tried, but they just could not get it started again. 
And one person on the team was convinced that this was demonic attack. And so they had everyone gather around the bus and lay hands on the bus and begin to pray. Then the bus driver walked around and he said, "Uh, excuse me, I'm sorry, but it appears as though I forgot to fill up with gas. (laughs) And so we struggle with the supernatural. Why? Because who wants to be that guy, right? All right, everybody, it's a demon. Let's pray. We'd much rather be logical and reasonable rather than see every inconvenience as supernaturally significant. You know, but secondly, who has time for all that? Life's busy enough as it is. Soccer practice and cell phones and appointments and just trying to keep our sanity. And we think, I can barely handle the world that I can see, yet alone account for a world that I cannot see. But this morning, Paul urges us all to reconsider. He's saying it's not always because it ran out of gas. And just because you're so busy doesn't change the fact that you are in a cosmic war, and this cosmic war comes close. You are on the front lines. On one of our trips to India a few years ago, Isaiah and Anunth picked us up at the airport. And we got in the van, and I sat next to a nun, and we started catching up like we always do. What's going on in the deep forest? How are the people? What are they praying for? And a nun talked for a bit, and then he told me about a young woman that had recently come up to him. And she said, would you please pray for my daughter? Would you please pray for her? I wake up at night, and she's walking around the hut, destroying things, banging pots and pans and making a huge mess and all sorts of chaos, and I cannot control her. So a nun said they prayed for her daughter to be delivered from evil spirits. And I said, well, do you think maybe it's just some form of mental illness? And a nun said, oh, no, it's nothing like that. And I said, well, how do you know? And he says it's because her daughter is only nine months old. Nine months. She can't walk during the day. But she walks at night. A nunth might as well have patted me on the shoulder and said, Zach, my brother, welcome to the front lines. Why is that story so unsettling? I think because if it's true, then how you understand the world has to change. It is a fork in the road. It's either true or it's not. And if it is, it demands that how you see and understand the world has to change. This is what Paul is saying to us. That the reality of the cosmic powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places impose themselves on your worldview and situate your life on the front lines of a profound spiritual battle. This cosmic war comes close. It knocks on your front door, and it's looking for your family, it's looking for your kids, and it's looking for you. And Paul says, church, we must stand firm and be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
But what does that even mean? What does that even look like? Well, to try and understand this morning, we are going to break this passage down into three parts. The right worldview, the right war, and the right weapons. And I worked so hard all week on that alliteration, so I'd like to say that again. We need the right worldview, the right war, and the right weapons. One of the reasons supernatural realities don't factor more into our thinking is because we do not share Paul's worldview. You know, verse 12 just seems so natural to him. Like it just flows out of the pen, so intuitive to how he thinks when he says, when he talks of these cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, it's just so normal for him. But where does he get that? Where does that come from? No, it's not because Paul read Frank Peretti. It's because Paul knows his Old Testament. Paul knows his Bible. The scriptures shaped his understanding of the world and its cosmology and the reality of heaven and earth. But the truth is, the pieces that create that worldview are actually scattered throughout the Bible. And you have to put the pieces all together. So let's do that. Let's gather the pieces and see the picture that it paints for us. So start with Psalm 82, where God sits in the midst of his divine counsel, holding judgment, surrounded by the Elohim, the sons of God, the archangels and angels who are members of his heavenly household and do his bidding. And then in Job 38, God tells Job that when he created the earth and he laid her foundations, he was surrounded by the sons of God who watched his creative power be displayed and they shouted for joy. But then Ezekiel 28 says that one of those sons of God was special. He was the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and beauty and adorned with precious stones. He was an Eden. He was a guardian of the garden of God. And he walked among the stones of fire on the mountain of God. But there was unrighteousness in him. He was proud because of his beauty and he became corrupted by his own splendor. And he became a hideous dragon and a cosmic Judas because he made a play, an attempt to dethrone the Most High, and war broke out in heaven. And Revelation 12 says this war was fought between this dragon and all of the angels that followed him and Michael, the archangel, leading all the angels who followed the Most High. But the dragon, the ancient serpent, was thrown down to the earth with all of his angels where they would now deceive the nations. What nations, you ask? It's all the nations of mankind that were scattered at Babel, each going their own way, would now be preyed upon by the deceiving power of the dragon and his army and the rebellion in heaven would now become a greater rebellion on earth. 
And Moses tells us in Deuteronomy 32 that God divided up the nations among his Elohim, the sons of God to steward and administer them. But God chose one nation for himself. That nation belonged to him. And he created a new people. How did he do it? He did so by calling Abram out of the nations. Out of Ur of the Chaldeans in Babylon. A new people that would be his prized possession alone. But then in Psalm 82, it speaks of how the sons of God rebelled and became corrupt in how they administered the nations. These cosmic powers led by the dragon deceived the people with false gods, false worship, false religion, false understandings of humanity. They built ideologies and empires upon lies about the value of human life that dehumanized the people, enslaved them to untruth, disregarded their image of God value, and they brought war upon the earth as nation fought for supremacy over other nations, empires and kingdoms that pulled the people away from God with promises, promise after promise that they would be able to build an earthly utopia through earthly power if they just placed their trust in earthly rulers. And these powers created division drawing dividing lines and stoked the fires of hatred and war, race, genocide, injustice, and oppression. And the nations were deceived. The nations believed it all, and they were drawn further and further away from God. But God, the Most High, would wage war against these cosmic powers with his own cosmic forces, like the archangel Michael wrestling the dragon over the body of Moses because the dragon wanted to possess it for himself and mislead the people of God. And Daniel being told that Michael was fighting against the cosmic prince of Persia who held sway over the empire. But he also tells us that the Most High God would wage war through his people because he told Abraham, I will make you a blessing to the nations. You will be a light to the world. And through you, I'm going to take all of the nations back for myself. But he's not going to drop bombs. He's going to fight by being a blessing. And Israel failed. They chose instead to be just like the nations, and they didn't look any different than the surrounding world. They desired earthly power, not heavenly power. They worshiped foreign gods, not their God. They were corrupt, oppressed the poor, and lived for profits. And Isaiah 59 says that God would now one day send the divine warrior. The one who would come and complete the purpose and mission of God to redeem the nations for himself and to disarm the cosmic powers. He sent Jesus, the true son, the true Israel, and he held a different kind of power. One that made even the demons beg him for mercy. But then the true son died, crucified on a cross. And when he died, it appeared as though the cosmic powers had won. 
The cosmic princes of the Roman Empire rejoiced and threw a party on dark Saturday as Jesus lay dead in the grave. But the cross is the ultimate Trojan horse. For the strength of God always looks like weakness to this world. Because what gave the appearance of victory to the cosmic powers was the certainty of their defeat. Because they watched, once again, as the Spirit of God would descend over and hover over the, the chaos in this world and he would bring new life. And the dragon and all of his cosmic forces threw everything they had to keep Christ in the grave. But it was impossible for death to keep its grip on him. And the true son was resurrected. And he was given a name above every name, a throne above every ruler and power and authority, and he will make all of his enemies his footstool. And this true son, the resurrected son, formed an army, and he gave them marching orders when he said to them, all authority has now been given to me on heaven and earth. Now go into all of the world, to the ends of the earth, to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and wage war against the cosmic powers and take what belongs to me. That's Paul's worldview. Is it yours? That's his worldview that we participate with the divine warrior against the cosmic powers of darkness to rob them of the people that they have deceived. That worldview is so unbelievably necessary. Why? Because if we don't have it, we will end up fighting the wrong war because we will misidentify the enemy. And how do we do that? Well, we just simply flip verse 12. And we live as though it says, we wrestle not against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers of darkness. We wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against Democrats. We wrestle against liberals. We wrestle against the LGBTQ community. We wrestle against the woke mob. We wrestle against cultural progressives. We wrestle against anyone that disagrees with us. They are the enemy attack. And then what happens is we don't wage war in the heavenly places. We wage war in the earthly places on the battlegrounds of elections and politics, earthly power and influence in culture wars. Politicians start to become our priests. News pundits start to become our prophets. And the goal is simply to change culture instead of proclaiming a crucified Savior. And there's a massive, eternally significant difference between the two. And hearing that, you might be thinking, I'm saying political issues aren't important and we should just avoid it altogether. No, friend, not at all. Not at all. The church is obligated to speak truth, to operate as a prophetic voice that calls out lies and injustice and oppression and corruption on both sides, which means we should never stop talking. It's everywhere. We should use the influence that we have for good to promote human flourishing according to what God said is good and true and right and beautiful. But... We have to ask ourselves why we engage those things. 
What's our true motivations? Is it about the mission of God or is it really about something else? Because we can engage those things in a way that has nothing to do with Christ or his mission in this world. How so? Well, we engage with ideas and ideologies all day long, but we will never really engage with any individual. It's being willing to, yes, pray for our nation, but we never care to pray for our neighbor. It's hoping our people turn out to vote, but we never are willing to lovingly engage someone with a completely different set of values. And so really the goal just becomes about turning our nation into a Christian safe space so that we don't have to deal with others that are unlike us and disagree with us and we can just live in comfort. It's not about grieving the deceptive lies of the cosmic powers that literally dehumanize and destroy the people around us and lead them astray. Those issues are not about having an opportunity to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's just an opportunity to crush an opponent. We have to ask why we engage those things. We also have to ask how we engage those issues. We have to ask how we engage those areas. Because if we when we don't have the right worldview, we misidentify the enemy and we wrestle against flesh and blood. And so then our enemies become those on the other side of the aisle or those with opposing views or different signs in their yard. We see those flesh and blood enemies and we get angry and we feel so entitled to that malice that rises up in our hearts and we want to dress for war. We want to arm ourselves with that breastplate of rage that helmet of contempt, the belt of insults, and the sword of hatred, all while thinking we really want to uphold Christian values. We just see an opponent to crush when the mission of God says, no, they are someone to convert. And just like Israel, the church can become just like the surrounding world and look no differently because they fight with the same tactics, with the same strategies, playing the same games to achieve the same goals. And that's a big deal because in the end, the church looks no different than the surrounding world. Why? Because they want the same thing. Power. All the while, the cosmic powers of darkness rejoice at all of the division. They celebrate all that hatred and contempt of neighbor and say, well done, our good and faithful servants. Political issues are certainly a battleground, but we can still fight the wrong war. And do we have any idea of how much that's actually cost us? There's a recent book that came out that the staff is going through together called The Great Dechurching. And it's a book that outlines the most comprehensive study to date on why so many have left the church or dechurched. Does anyone know what it cost us? Over the last 25 years, 40 million people have left the church. Over the last 25 years, 40 million people have left the church, which is more than were converted in the First Great Awakening, Second Great Awakening, and the Billy Graham Crusades combined. And one of the main reasons these people said they de-churched 
was because of the culture wars and the endless jockeying for political power. They just heard people calling for transformation that didn't seem very transformed themselves. They no longer heard a transcendent gospel of power, but one that was just fighting for the same thing as the rest of the world. The church stopped offering an alternative. And in large part, I think it's because culture wars tend to promote Christian values without Christ. It becomes a value system that no longer points to him. But even Muslims believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. They saw the church fighting endlessly for something that doesn't bring real, gospel, eternally significant change. Politics and laws and legislation do not, cannot, and will not ever bring about the purposes of God. Do laws change hearts of stone into hearts of flesh? Does legislation produce confession and repentance unto life to where someone says, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner? Laws don't give new desires to love their enemies and their neighbor as themselves. They don't create godly homes or sacrificial marriages. They don't heal the damage of the effects of abuse or bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. Laws do not create a zeal for the mission and purposes of God. This faith cannot be legislated. This faith cannot be mandated by earthly power. It is only possible. It only comes through heavenly power. And the church has to come to terms with how it has chosen to engage the world and why it does so. Is it about our comfort? Or is it about Christ? Do we engage these things with the right worldview so that we can fight the right war? Or does the world see Christians just as angry as they are? With ambitions that rise no higher than earthly office. Are we willing to look at the other regardless of their views and have compassion upon them? Because we say to them, you need the same thing I do, friend, Jesus. This is why Jesus does not give us bullets. He gives us bread to go out and invite the world to come and sit at this table and be reconciled to a God who invites all of his enemies to come and fellowship with him. And so do we really want to change culture? Man, I hope not. Why? Because that is so boring. That's like telling you I want to give you a free vacation, but you think it's just a two-night stay at a Motel 6 on I-30. That falls so short. We are called to so much more. Your Savior said it himself when he sent us out that we are called to change the world. And you know what changes the world? Converts. Converts. Do you know what toppled the Roman Empire? The greatest empire to ever be on this earth. It was converts. What started as just a few people in an upper room turned into an army. An army that had zero earthly power. But you know what they did have? Good works. They did have a care for the poor. They did have a love for their neighbor in word and deed in times of pandemic and plague. And they had the gospel of truth and power on their lips. 
and it gave them a boldness to face persecution. And they robbed the cosmic powers, one convert after the other. Because do you know what happened? These powerless people toppled the greatest power on earth because they literally bankrupted the empire. The people converted and they no longer gave to the temples of the Roman gods, which means the Roman empire no longer had the money to feed its war machine. When we don't have the right worldview, we misidentify the enemy and we fight the wrong war and we can forget the most important thing of all, that the mission of God is a rescue mission. A rescue mission to save others from the dehumanizing and deceptive cosmic powers and bring them into this glorious kingdom of light. That is, after all, if you remember how this whole thing got started, when God did what? When God robbed the nations of Abram. And he said, I am going to bless the nations through you and create a new people. That moment was just a preview. And the Great Commission is Jesus calling us to war, to raid the domains of the cosmic powers and to rob them, to speak to the world about another king and another kingdom, to wash them with the waters of baptism, to feed them and strengthen them for the fight at his table and to give them marching orders to go and vanquish the enemy. And if we want converts, we have to have the right worldview so we can fight the right war, but we also have to have the right weapons. And Paul says to stand firm in the Lord and the strength of his might by putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit. And I get it. You read all that, and it kind of seems like it's really anticlimactic. Like, why can't Jesus just give me a bazooka, right? Or it doesn't really mean anything because it just feels so abstract to mean something significant. And that is our problem. We don't think those things have any power. And yet, where do they come from? Who gives those things to us? Remember what Paul is telling us when he says to put these things on. He's telling us to dress ourselves like Jesus, the divine warrior. And each of these things are given to you by virtue of your life with the triune God. They're gifts given to us because of our union with the divine warrior. And Paul wants us to see that these are weapons with divine power whenever they sink down deep into your heart. And you truly understand what they mean. That will give you the energy to wage war in the heavenly places. The power to rob the enemy. And to thwart the arrows of the evil one. And if converts are what Christ is after, then that makes this a ground war. It's fought in the foxholes and the trenches of your neighborhood, your office, and a bedtime with your kids. Seeing them through the mission of God and the marching orders that we have been given and while the great dechurching, the book has some really discouraging figures, it also offers really beautiful hope. Because what they found was that virtually all, virtually all of those 40 million people who have left the church said that they would absolutely be willing to come back if someone invited them. That's it. If someone invited them to come back. If someone would befriend them 
and invite them to church, they said, yes, I would go. That means the great de-churching can become the great re-churching. But what do they need? They need an army that will come after them. But what keeps us from going to them and all of the others around us that have never even set foot in church? What keeps us from opening our mouths and fighting? Isn't it being afraid of that we don't know what we should say? We don't know what they need. But Paul says that that belt of truth that you're wearing knows the mystery of the ages and you know exactly what they need. And you have the words of God that have the power to create the cosmos. Or isn't it being afraid of rejection and what they'll think of us? But Paul says that that breastplate of righteousness on your chest says that you are accepted and adored by the most high God. Who cares what man thinks? Or we're afraid of what we might lose, but Paul says that helmet of salvation tells you that you have been given all things in Christ, even the cosmos. Or it's being afraid that nothing will happen or come from it. But that shield of faith reminds you that God is not joining you in what you are doing. You are joining God in what he is doing. And that gives you permission to have a ridiculous faith and pray for what God might do. Because he has told us to go and to rob the cosmic powers by the power of his spirit. Christian, by grace, you have been drafted into the army of God. Welcome to the front lines. For the glory of Christ and the life of the world, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we ask that you would make us a powerful army that is dressed as a divine warrior, that we would see you do something magnificent among us, that you would fill our church with the treasure of your people that have been robbed from the cosmic powers. We ask that you would protect our homes from the evil one. We ask that you would protect our families and our children we ask that we would be quick to speak the truth in love. We ask that we would be quick to point out the lies and the destructive values and ideas of this world. But that we would also point to the beauty of life with you. And the way that you have called us to live. The way that you've called us to be. We need your grace. We need your mercy. And we need your power. And we ask that collectively, as your army, you would give us a spirit-filled imagination for what you might do. And that we would ask you for it. And then we would watch you do it. We ask all this in your powerful and precious name. Amen.